Nothing disqualifies one from glory quite so reliably as an unwillingness to suffer. Almost without exception, joy lies on the far side of pain. Maturity is born from hardship. Peace grows from sorrow's soil. Inconvenient truths, to be sure, but truths to be spurned at great cost. This is a story about a becoming, about a journey of transformation enabled by a God who can be found working in the dungeons, in the sweat, in the tears, breathing life into dust. This story is the story, really. Your story, if you're brave enough to live it. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. Nighttime in the dungeon. Rats scurry along the walls. Roaches scuttle across the floor. Joseph lies on his mat, staring at a moldy ceiling, his surrogate sky for the past... How long has it been? Years. He itches his abundant beard, a testament to the length of his incarceration, not hardly the patchy token of budding manhood he lost when Potiphar bought him as a slave. Now the hair cascades from his face, thick and coarse, black as the air in this pit. He breathes slowly, the tattered fabric of his tunic rising with his chest. What does Joseph think about? in these night watches. What it would be like to be free, to have a wife, children. The moments that landed him here, perhaps, an involuntary replaying of Potiphar's wife's advances, his refusal, her accusations, Potiphar's rage. trembling as a 17-year-old auctioned to be the personal property of an Egyptian stranger. His brother's arms wrapped around his flailing body, their iron grip on his ankles, the moment of freefall, impact, screaming, shouting, pleading, weeping. And what about earlier days? Surely Joseph comforts himself in the darkness by letting his mind wander back to moments spent in the warmth of his father Israel's company. When he let Joseph tag along on a sheep-shearing trip, I need my best helper. Or the day Israel couldn't stop smiling, telling Joseph to close his eyes and hold out his hands. The feeling of wool on his fingers. 
his eyes opening to a rainbow's worth of colors and a robe woven from affirmation and paternal affection. Or the night his father let him stay late at the campfire and told him stories about the God who spoke to him in a dream, promising his descendants the land of Canaan. Which descendants? Canaan is so far away from this place. These dreams, this God, where is he? A tear falls across Joseph's temple, perhaps, as he realizes he's having trouble picturing his father's face. So much time. So much lost forever. 300 miles away, an old man lies awake, perhaps, beneath a sky littered with infinite stars. The pain of grief comes quickly, as usual, and, as usual, he reaches for the balm of memory. Moments flicker in his mind, his son's little hand in his as they set off on the boys' first sheep-shearing trip. The night they stayed out together beside the fire, Joseph's eyes wide with wonder as he listened to the story of what happened at Bethel. Maybe Yahweh will speak to me in a dream. Perhaps, my boy, you never know with him. A tear falls across Israel's temple as he fingers the wool beside him. A rainbow's worth of colors obscured by the darkness and by the crusted crimson stains streaked across the only thing Israel has left of his son. So much lost forever. Suddenly, an Egyptian fist knocks at the door of Joseph's cell. Joseph stares at the hair on the floor, coarse, black. He runs his hands over his smooth face, fingers the linen slave's skirt wrapped around his waist, sniffs the ointment rubbed into the skin of his bare torso. It smells like life, the possibility of freedom, the awakening of hope, breath on the glowing embers of his dreams. He follows an escort through the palace and finds himself standing before Pharaoh himself. The king of Egypt fixes his gaze upon the Hebrew prisoner, studies him. The cupbearer, perhaps, offers an apologetic glance in Joseph's direction. Finally, Pharaoh speaks. I had a dream. Joseph's heart beats. And no one can interpret it. Pharaoh looks around accusingly at his attendants and advisors, and then back to Joseph. But I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. No. Pharaoh's face darkens. I cannot do it. Satisfaction in the eyes of the magicians, 
A cocktail of anger and hopelessness swirls in the king's heart. But then Joseph continues, But God will give Pharaoh the answer he desires. The beads of the royal flail rattle as Pharaoh moves forward on his throne. In my dream, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, when out of the river there came up seven cows, fat and sleek, and they grazed among the reeds. Joseph nods. After them, seven other cows came up, very ugly and scrawny, lean. I'd never seen such ugly cows in all the land of Egypt. The king's eyes refocus, and he continues, The lean, ugly cows ate up the seven fat cows that came up first. But even after they ate them, no one could tell that they had done so. They they looked just as ugly as before. Then I woke up. Before Joseph can respond, Pharaoh keeps going. And then I had another. In the second dream, I saw seven heads of grain full and good, growing on a single stalk. After them, seven other heads sprouted, withered and scorched by the east wind. That faraway look in his eyes again. The thin heads of grain swallowed up the seven good heads. He turns back to Joseph. I told this to the magicians, but none of them could explain it to me. Then, silence. What thoughts play in Pharaoh's mind in these quiet moments? His faith in the gods of Egypt, whose power the magicians wield, what does that faith look like as these seers stammer and stutter and finally admit their blindness? As he studies this Hebrew, is Pharaoh hoping to find someone who is in fact connected to Amun and Horus? Or is the king hoping that Joseph represents something, someone else, a new power? Yahweh nods and continues his work. Joseph looks in the monarch's coal-lined eyes. The gathered magicians hold their breath, and Israel's son speaks. The dreams of Pharaoh are one and the same. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The king edges forward. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good heads of grain are seven years. It is one and the same dream. The seven lean, ugly cows that came up afterward are seven years, and so are the seven worthless heads of grain scorched by the east wind. They are seven years of famine concern on Pharaoh's face. But what does that mean? It is just as I said to Pharaoh. God has shown Pharaoh what he is about to do. Seven years of great abundance are coming through the land of Egypt, but seven years of famine will follow them. Then all the abundance in Egypt will not be remembered because the famine that follows it will be so severe. Are you sure? 
The king's eyes flit this way and that, perhaps, as he imagines an escape, a, a sacrifice, a thousand sacrifices. But Joseph shakes his head. The reason the dream was given to Pharaoh in two forms is that the matter has been firmly decided by God. And God will do it soon. Pharaoh exhales, leans back in his throne, his mind flooded with images of starving men and women, skeletal children, his land ravaged by famine. The beads of the royal flail murmur in his trembling hand. While Pharaoh ponders this news, or confers with an advisor, Joseph's eyes narrow as he listens. He swallows, then speaks. And now, let Pharaoh look for a discerning and wise man and put him in charge of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh's eyebrow rises, perhaps. Counsel now from this prisoner. The advisors scoff while the king turns to Joseph, who stands tall and continues. Let Pharaoh appoint commissioners over the land to take a fifth of the harvest of Egypt during the seven years of abundance. They should collect all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain under the authority of Pharaoh to be kept in the cities for food. This food should be held in reserve for the country to be used during the seven years of famine that will come upon Egypt so that the country may not be ruined by the famine. Then, silence. A nod. Three nods. Seven. Pharaoh among them. The ruler of pagan Egypt turns to his officials and asks a question. That is not a question. Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Pharaoh stands and says to Joseph, Since God has made all this known to you, there is no one so discerning and wise as you. You shall be in charge of my palace, and all my people are to submit to your orders. Only with respect to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph blinks. But in the face of this shocking pronouncement, it's these words from the king that ricochet in his mind, one in whom is the spirit of God. Deity in him. Days later, Pharaoh presides over a crowd of Egyptians gathered in a courtyard or a great hall, trumpeters and harpists filling the air with music that plays as soundtrack to this unprecedented moment. The great king stands atop a platform, and beside him stands a Hebrew from Canaan, former shepherd, former slave, former deputy to the captain of the guard, former convict, former deputy to the prison warden. And now, Joseph holds out his hands, the feeling of linen on his fingers. 
his eyes gazing on a rainbow's worth of colors in a robe woven from affirmation and paternal affection. Joseph lowers his head as Pharaoh places a gold chain around his neck, then a signet ring, straight from the king's finger to Joseph's. I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Cheers from the crowd. I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. More cheers. Later, a chariot parades through the streets of the capital. Sunlight glints off gold, silver, and bronze as Joseph stands tall and waves to gathered throngs who shout, Make way! Make way! Flanking the chariot, men and women genuflect. Citizens of the great empire of Egypt drop to their knees like stars falling at his feet bowing before Joseph in cosmic obeisance. These dreams, this God. In the coming months, Pharaoh bestows a new name on Joseph, an Egyptian name, Zaphonat Penea. Later, rabbis will postulate that the title means something like the man to whom secrets are revealed. But full confidence will be impossible, and the name's exact meaning will remain a secret itself. The king bestows another gift on Joseph as well, a wife. Asenat, daughter of the chief priest of the capital city, On, later known as Heliopolis, City of the Sun. With this union, Pharaoh cements his favor and secures a permanent position in Egyptian high society for Joseph. And it seems that Joseph teaches his bride, daughter of a pagan priest, about a new deity, an unknown god the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord of heaven and earth who does not live in temples built by human hands. Asenat listens, her husband's words made weighty by his kindness, as he tells her of the God who involves himself in human affairs, so that those humans, Hebrew or Canaanite or Egyptian, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. Indeed, closer even than Joseph dared imagine. Wheels rumble as the chariot of silver and gold and bronze makes its way to every corner of the kingdom. In a flurry of activity, Joseph visits city after city, putting his God-given gifts of administration to work. In every place, rainfall has been perfect. Sunlight has coaxed wonders from the soil, and row upon row of abundance decorates the fields. Emmer wheat, 
barley, sorghum, lentils, chickpeas, fava beans, onions, garlic, radishes, lettuce, parsley, olive groves, sprawling vineyards, watermelon vines, carob and pomegranate trees, apple orchards. These are the good years. Joseph establishes caches in each city, expertly managing inventory and transport of the storable crops, grains, garlic and potatoes, winter squash. Season after season, the land outdoes itself, a profusion of food springing from the earth as if ungoverned by the laws of biology, as if this were a dream. The grains, especially, show forth in miraculous surplus Joseph meticulously catalogs every harvest, every deposit, into the growing hordes. Yahweh nods and continues his work. One day, with granaries across the land overflowing, Joseph gives up on measuring it all. The coiled hieroglyphs marking 100 have been eclipsed by tiny figures of the god Heh, the personification of infinity and the symbol for one million. If one were so inclined, they might see this pictogram as a kneeling man with arms outstretched in praise. Perhaps that's how Joseph sees it. And then, amidst all of this plenty, more. Asenat squeals in joy. She's late. Joseph is going to be a father. Nine months later, Israel's son is holding his own little boy. I will call him Manasseh. It's a Hebrew word, and it means to forget. Because God has made me forget all my trouble. His eyes moisten, and all my father's household. Not long after, another boy. Joseph kisses his wife and smiles through happy tears. We'll call him Ephraim, fruitful, because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. But finally, the seven years of abundance come to an end. Almost immediately, rain becomes scarce. The soil grows recalcitrant, stingy. The Nile withers. And it's not just in Egypt. The entire region stretching up to the Levant and east toward the Indus Valley and west across the Mediterranean, the entire known world experiences a brutal famine. Drought plunders. Crops struggle. Insects swarm. Men, women, and children grow hungry. Cheeks sink and elbows protrude. Lacking nutrients, immune systems falter and bacteria and viruses pounce. Typhus, dysentery, scurvy, diarrhea. Fights break out in the streets. Governments panic. But in Egypt, a different story. Like everywhere else, their fields fade from green to brown, but the people do not grow thin. 
Vast storehouses are opened and distributions are administered by the sharp mind and capable hands of Joseph. In every city, he orchestrates the sale of generous rations to Egypt's grateful citizens. There is enough for everyone. More, even. Before long, word of this anomaly travels to the suffering nations beyond the empire's borders. People travel hundreds of miles, journeying from Arabia, Mesopotamia, Assyria, the lands of the Hittites. All the world comes to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph. And as he looks on one bending knee after another, Joseph's dreams play in his head. This, at last, is their fulfillment. Or is it? There are still eleven who have not bowed before him. Yahweh nods and continues his work. Eventually, the leader of a clan in Canaan will send representatives to Egypt to buy food. Ten men, the eldest sons of an old man named Israel. They will not recognize their brother Joseph when he stands before them as Pharaoh's viceroy. Of course they won't. But he will recognize them. And when, at last, he reveals to them his identity, and when, at last, he forgives their betrayal, he will tell them to bring their father away from the blighted valley of Hebron to the care and provision waiting for him in Egypt. They will obey, taking Joseph up on his offer to receive all of them and their families. And finally, the day will come. Joseph will make ready his chariot and ride to meet his newly arrived father. Israel, now 130 years old, having lived over two decades without his beloved son Joseph, the son who died and apparently now lives, Israel will shuffle out of his door and feast his disbelieving eyes on the face of his little boy. Not so little anymore but even more beardless. Joseph will throw his arms around his dad and weep. He'll weep for a long time. Israel will look at his son and, through tears, manage, Now I am ready to die, since I have seen for myself that you are still alive. But Joseph won't let it end that quickly, nor will Yahweh. He'll give Israel 17 more years in Egypt. The old man will watch in awe as every person in the nation, save one, bends their knee to his son. He'll watch as Joseph provides food to hundreds of thousands, wheat and barley and sorghum sorted and stacked and waiting for the young ruler's orders. <laughs> Why? It seems even the grain bows before his boy. These dreams. This God. So much lost. But not forever. 
And then, many hundreds of years later, Yahweh will write another story that parallels much of this one. A beloved son will leave his father's house and travel to a faraway place, a stronghold of empire, a land full of shadow. In this place, he will become a servant, and he will suffer many things. But amidst the pain and the disappointment, he will stand tall. Those around him will discover new faith as they find themselves saying in so many words, Can we find anyone like this man? One in whom is the Spirit of God. Like Joseph, this son's suffering will not last forever. He will be raised up, given a position of honor. A golden sash will be placed across his chest, and he'll be dressed in a shining garment that reaches down to his feet. A robe woven from affirmation and paternal affection. And he will rule so well. There will be enough for everyone. More, even. And Yahweh, Yahweh will nod. For at last, his work will be done. Hey, Justin here. I hope part three of The Companion and the Right-Hand Man blessed you. It's been a joy to spend this time in the incredible story of Joseph and the God who was so faithfully with him. I'm so grateful for the response so far to Holy Ghost Stories Live, the Christmas show happening in Nashville on December 5th at the gorgeous Scarrett Bennett Center's Whiteman Chapel. You guys have jumped in on this and your enthusiasm is a great encouragement. Thank you for that. I'm in the midst of planning and preparing and I'm telling you, it's going to be 90 minutes of absolute magic. You do not want to miss this. If you haven't gotten your tickets yet, head to holyghoststories.org, reserve your seat, and I will see you at 7 p.m. on December 5th. Finally, a huge thank you from all of us to the patrons of Holy Ghost Stories who understand that efforts like this take time and money and who give a bit every month to enable people all over the world to spend these moments with Yahweh. And a special shout out to the Tours, who are the epitome of kingdom partners. Ryan and Kelly, Miranda, Amanda, Carrie Joy, John, Joshua, David, Teresa, Daniel, Deborah, Terry, Rachel, Valerie, Travis, Steve, Shannon, Kara, Don, Jean-Paul, Brenda, Tiffany, Sarah Beth, Daniel, Stephanie, Helen, Hildy, Debbie, Susan, Rick, Stephanie, Derek, Mindy, Maddie, Joseph, Jonathan, Ricky, Brandy, Mark, Kimmy, Stephen, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Nelwyn, Julie, Aaron, Jamie, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa Sloan and Jamie you are God with me thank you if you don't want Holy Ghost Stories to go away you can join these patrons at patreon.com slash Holy Ghost Stories links in the show notes Holy Ghost Stories is a production of Hazefire Studios manuscript editing by J.L. Gerhardt research writing narration and sound editing by me Justin Gerhardt till next time